Hey, see, since we're talking about fashion today, if you could just, uh, what would you say is your fashion style? What it, what it is your fashion? But what I believe my my fashion is your style. I think that's my the word I'm my style for. from day to day. I mean, you see me most days. Mm-hmm. I would say my style is librarian chic. Yes, I would express my style or explain my style as like classic but different. I have like a white button down, but it's exciting. You know what I mean? With a little bit of librarian mixed in. Now that we've discussed our our fashion sense in depth. (laughs) If you haven't. If you couldn't tell, the theme for today's episode is fashion. Fashion. Uh, my article is a little less about like a person or place of fashion, but more about the history of fashion. This article is titled, Using Clothing Styles to Date Photographs of Women, Part 2, 1850s, 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. The author is Lauren Gilbertson, and this was published in the 2002 Volume 42, Issue 1 through 4 of The Hoosier Genealogist. Like the title suggested, this piece is a study guide or like a one-sheet one look over of how you might date family photographs or, or anything that you might find. The author opens this piece by saying, when we attempt to date photographs, there are almost always adult women in them, hopefully. And adult women's clothing is much more indicative of an era than men's clothing. It's not, men's clothing doesn't shift as drastically as women's does. That makes sense to me. I mean, if you think about men's fashion in the past, like, hundred years, there's not a ton of difference. Right. It's like a variation of pant or like, you know. Button up shirt. Yeah. Some sort of jacket, right? I would say the biggest change in men's fashion is like hairstyle. That's a good point. Accessories and hairstyles are featured in this article, which is really an interesting point that I like that that Lauren includes. She encourages initially readers to consult outside sources in addition to this source, and she provides some really interesting outside sources. The first one she recommends is a publication called Everyday Fashions. This book was published by the Dover Company, and it is essentially a book of Sears ads all put together in one place. These illustrations are done from Sears catalogs, and, and they show Sears clothes, but they not only, despite only showing one retailer's clothes, they offer a really good glimpse of the fashion or the trends of the time. And this is 20th century focused. The other piece that she recommends is a goodies ladies book, which was published between 1838 and 1870. This was the most popular magazine at that time, and it was a fashion magazine. So this is helpful for more older dating. She goes on to say that readers should be careful when looking into these illustrations or other magazines or illustrations or photographs of fashion at the time because women's bodies were drawn disproportionately. Like we experience today, there were beauty standards at different times, and thus fashion will look different on these illustrations because they are showing more trendy versions of women's bodies. For example, in in the 1930s, women were drawn with really long necks and legs because that was the trend at the time. And so the, the illustrations in the Sears catalog in 1930, show really slender and tall and long-legged women. And that's just not common. Not everybody looks like that. And so she warns that even though a piece of clothing will look like this in an illustration, that's not how it may look on an actual person. So she starts off this article, or we're starting out the analysis of fashion. So in the 1850s, where we start, and she goes on to say that there are a few types of photographs, photograph types that may help you date a photograph. They could be daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, or tintypes. These are specific kinds of photographs 
we see sometimes in the archive. I'm not an archivist that works with these frequently, so I recommend Googling them to see an example, but those may be your initial step, helpful and an initial step of dating them. Some prints of the time will appear on carte de vite, visite, excuse me, which became popular in the late 1850s. And that's just a different kind of photo. Fashions in the 1850s were characterized by very full and round skirts. These skirts were often layered with petticoats and they had hoops eventually that went underneath them. Hmm. The silhouette was very triangular, meaning that the waist was really high and often the waist would end in like a point towards the center of the torso. That makes sense. So you'd have like yeah. high waisted curves and ended in a point. And this sort of gave a kind of triangular look. Right, you can imagine that. The bodices were usually tight through the ribs and the neckline was round and trimmed with ribbons and a white collar, which is why I wear my white collared shirt today. Oh. Yes. The shoulders were, the shoulder seams were really low set. So they came down sort of close to the elbow and sleeves were narrow at the top. It got really full at the bottom and they often flared and were worn with white undersleeves. Huh. Again, my puffy white shirt. So you're just saying you're ready for the 1800s. I am 1850s pirate. 1970s pirate. That's I'm I'm 1850s slash 1970s pirate Barbie. There you go. Arg. <laughs> yes. The hairstyle that was common at the time was inspired by Empress Eugenie Eugenie of France. She was the influencer of the time. She parted her hair down the middle and then smoothed it back into a low bun. And so that was all the rage. Outerwear at the time, uh, cloaks, shawls, and capes were really common, sort of the billowy sort of look. And then headwear that was common was bonnets. We now take a huge leap forward into the 1920s. And when I think of the 1920s, I think of like counterculture, sort of like women pushing back against this femininity that has been standard of fashion at the time. I think flappers and bobs. Yes, those are common. Yeah, that is that is 1920s. Fashions of this decade were characterized by oversized styles. So bust lines were really flattened so that dresses fell essentially just as a straight line from the shoulder to the hem. And the goal was for it to not touch your body. So very like straight looking. The waistline was at hip level, so much lower than than previous styles. Hems were about mid-calf and they began to even creep up to just below the knee in the late 20s. Dress materials were often made of lightweight fabrics and often dresses were decorated with beads, stitchings, and different trim. And these even were worn in the daytime. Hmm. Later, these decorations sort of, these elaborate maybe added decorations faded away and were replaced by pleats in the fabric to add a little bit of razzle-dazzle. Hairstyles of the time were, like you said, really short, chin length or or ear length. And they was often worn in straight style or in waves, which I think is pretty common when we think of the 20s. Yeah, I think the, the wavy, <clears throat> like the wavy tight to the face. Yes, yeah, sort of slick yeah. look. Yeah. Headwear that was common at the time um, was a hat called the cloche hat. Cloche is French for bell. So you can kind of imagine sort of a rounder hat at the top, and then it kind of comes in and goes back out a little bit. If you Google cloche hat, you'll you'll know what I mean. You've seen it before. These hats were close fitting and came down over the forehead. And some of the photos that I looked up on Google before this episode, they always had, these hats had a brim around the edge, and they kind of were decorated with like ribbon or feather or some sort of frill or something like that. Shoes that were common were high-heeled slippers, and they had ties usually or buckles over the foot. Outerwear consisted of coats that fastened over the left hip. I don't know why the left hip. Or coats that had to be held closed. So very specific in their closure. Yeah. That was 1920s. The 1930s was a dramatic fashion change from the 20s, where the 1920s was accentuated with 
quote, counterculture fashion for women, meaning very kind of masculine or anti-traditional feminine clothing. The 30s was an era of much more feminine and curvy silhouettes. The silhouettes of the time were flowy and emphasized the curves. Dresses were belted at the natural waist as opposed to a low waist, and they were fitted throughout the hips. Skirts flared slightly at the hem, giving some movement and that sort of curve shape. So not as dramatic as the 1850s. No, definitely not. Hems crept back down to mid-calf, so they were lower than the knee. Collars were large and cape-like to emphasize the shoulders. The main goal at the time was to make your shoulders kind of look bigger and broader, your waist thinner, and then to kind of have some curves in the hip. Create that silhouette. Fabrics that were used or that were common at the time were rayon and acetate. These were the first manufactured fibers to be used for women's clothing. And often some of um, the fabrics that were, that were used had all over lace. Hairstyles were, hair was styled in waves around the face and in a small bun in the back. Close fitting brimmed hats were worn, but they were almost always worn at an angle. High heeled slippers were still popular as they were in the 20s, but coats kind of shifted. They were more fitted and had really large lapels or collars. Fashions of the 40s were characterized by more triangular and structured silhouettes. So the shoulders again were a little more structured and the triangular silhouette came into the waist. Broad shoulders helped accentuate that look. Often they would add padding to to the coats or shirts to get that accentuated shoulder. Hems were slightly flared and ended just below the knee. Of course, this is a World War II era, so there were some restrictions about length and fullness and things like that. Suits and dress and jacket combos are really common combinations at the time. Sort of this really formal look, I feel like, if you look back. These jackets were shaped with darts and seams that really gave a really defined waist Hmm. on the wearer. Bold prints and trims were used to decorate these dresses. And at the time, military and menswear styles were really popular. They used really utilitarian fabrics. And the reason this is sort of common at the time was because it was, quote, now acceptable for women to wear pants, right? Although I wouldn't say that was common, but it was somewhat more, more accepted. Lauren specifically mentions a style at this time that came out a Christian Dior look called the new look. And this was created in the ni- in 1947, and it was based on this 1860s fashion. And it's kind of hard to describe, so I really recommend you look it up because once you look it up, you'll know exactly what it is. You've seen sort of silhouette drawings like it, but I'll try to describe them as best I can. The skirt is really full, sort of around the hips, and there's a fitted jacket that's known as the bar jacket. It's really tight around the torso, and then it protrudes out almost into a bell shape over the hips. So you get this really drastic, thin waist, and then this really voluptuous sort of hip area. You just need to look it up. It's a really cool design, and and you've seen it before, I'm sure. Is it the one that kind of like is floating, like where it's like kind of like like tense out, almost like a shelf, a yeah. round shelf? Yes, that's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. yeah. So this was really big at the time. All kinds of women wore it, wore iterations of the style. It was the trend at the time, post, post-war. Hairstyles at the time that were popular was the pompadour style, which was like high in the front. And then it kind of like pulled back and it had short curled sides. hair at the yeah. sides. Yeah, like the pre-poof. Pillbox hats were common, as, as were larger bonnets and small turbans. In terms of shoes, pumps were still pretty popular, high-heeled sandals, saddle shoes. The black and white sort of shoe that we think of, yeah. like, you know, a little skirt. Uh, common outerwear were fitted coats that had really prominent lapels or collars. Mm. And that's it. That's the end of Lauren's ma- little masterclass on fashion. Wow. 
yeah. I learned a lot there. I'm glad you did. Yeah, I mean, fashion is always a very interesting thing to learn about because I think it's so tied to just, like, pop culture in general, yes. you know what I mean? Yes. So, like, and it also, like, tells us so much about, like, what people thought looked good versus what didn't look good. Right, or what the world was going through or what kind of ideas people were sharing or discussing. Or, like, in general, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say. Okay, sometimes I just talk with no real end in sight. <laughs> no, I think sometimes, too, fashion tells you, like, the morality standards of the time. Yes, like, absolutely. Like, like you, what are you allowed to wear per... 1920s versus 1930s. Versus 1850s. Yeah. Yeah, like, what are you allowed to wear? What is what yeah. is uncouth? I think fashion is so interesting because it accompanies, right, like, major historical events. You can sort of see the trajectory of the world or people in fashion yeah. as related to politics or events. Yeah, That's very, very true. Yeah, fashion is fun. And you know what? Is yours even more fun? Mine is, I think, even more fun. Yeah. So my uh, article is from Traces. It is called A Fashionable Man, Designer Norman Norell. Okay. And it is from the spring 2008 issue of Traces. Got it. This article is by Nelson Price, and Price opens up the article by saying that from the early 1940s through the late 1960s, the widely acknowledged leader of American fashion was from Noblesville and Indianapolis, Hmm. Norman Norell, and he made 7th Avenue the rival of Paris. I am quickly learning from this podcast series that I know very little about... People from Indiana? Yeah, I'm I'm learning so much. (laughs) I know, I know. Me too. He was the son of Harry Levinson, who was a Hoosier haberdasher whose shops would expand statewide into a chain of men's clothing stores. Okay. Yep. So it's sort of in his blood. It is kind of in his blood, but we'll see later on that he doesn't really like, he doesn't associate so much with men's fashion. Oh, okay. Like he designs for many of the world's most recognizable women like Lauren Mm. Bacall, Marilyn Monroe, Doris Day. Wow, okay. And his original name, like his birth name, was Norman David Levinson. And he created his professional surname, Norell, because of Nor for Norman and L for Levinson. Hmm, okay. He won many fashion awards in the 1940s and 50s, and he was the first designer inducted into the industry's Hall of Fame. One of his colleagues named Bill Blass, one of his colleagues named Bill Blass, who was also from Indiana, wrote that Norman Norell represented the highest scale of expensive clothes in our country for years. Wow. So he was sort of a high-end designer? He was a very high-end designer. His sequined mermaid sheaths, which he had become known for, sold for $3,000 to $4,000 in the late 60s and were considered the most expensive dresses in America during his heyday. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. And he is credited with creating and or popularizing culottes, sequin-covered sheath dresses, and the simple round necklines on evening gowns. I love the word culottes. It is a fun word. I don't exactly understand what a culotte is, but I do know I like them. My grandma used to call capris culottes because she's a child of this era. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So as a kid, I thought capris were culottes, and I think they still are. I just don't know if there's a different kind of style with them. 
Sure. But none of the kids in my grade knew what culottes were. So I just was like, I assimilated. I just called them capris. I mean, that's fair. Norman was born on April 20th, 1900 in Noblesville, Indiana, where his father had a successful men's clothing store. It was successful because it was in Noblesville and people who lived there didn't usually go all the way into Indianapolis to shop. So he had Mm -hmm. provided a solution to a kind of desert of fashion, if you will. Okay. The original family included his father, Harry, his mother, Nettie, and his brother, Frank, who was four years older than Norman. Was Norman the youngest? Norman was the youngest. Okay. And he had a hard childhood. He was often frail and ill because of uh, rheumatic fever or other diseases. And while Norman would often draw and go to the theater and things like that, his brother Frank started helping out with the family business. This is going to lead to some, some tension down the line. Family drama, huh? Yep. In 1905, Norman's father opened a one-price men's hat store in Indianapolis. One price, meaning every one, hat was the same one price? One price. Every hat was the same price. Well, so that's ba- interesting. So honor. back then, a cheap hat was a dollar, an expensive hat was three. So all hats were $2 at this store. That's interesting. Yep. So he went down... Uh, to Indianapolis every day on the inner urban while the boys and Nettie remained in Noblesville. Eventually, Frank and Norman were both expected to help in the shop, and this was one of Norman's first artistic jobs, was to trim the windows and like make the window displays. Oh, that sounds fun. It does sound fun. Because his father's hat shop advertised in playbills, Norman and the rest of his family were able to ish- attend shows for free. He started going to the theater when he was eight. He kept going so frequently that instead of completing his homework assignments, Norman would start to do sketches of sets and costumes, which didn't go well for Norman in the beginning. Scholastically, you mean? Scholastically, and he was eventually sent to a military school (gasps) in Kentucky. Poor Norman, he didn't seem like the kind of kid who would thrive at a military school. No, he was just an artsy kid. Yeah. He just he just wanted to do his little designs yeah. and go on with his life. Yeah. He was very miserable, and he would write to his grandmother, his nephew later recalls. His father caves in and allows him to leave the military school and return to Indianapolis. Okay. And this is where there's some there's some rift, right? So Norman immediately tells his father and brother no, he's not going to join the family business. Because at this point, his brother is really picking up more of the slack of the family business. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I, I need to do this on my own. At the age of 19, Norman enrolls at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn to study fashion illustration. He really adopts he adopts his new name, although he never legally changes it. Mm. And he graduates... After his graduation, he is hired at the age of 22 by Astoria Studios of Paramount Pictures. This doesn't last super long, however, because the studio pretty much moves from New York to California pretty soon after that. And so then Norman starts working as a costume designer for Broadway shows, just trying to build up his portfolio. He starts getting these small successes in the beginning of his career. In 1924, he works for Charles Armour, and he creates a gold lamé dress with a wide suede belt 
and it sells well. But afterwards, it starts to blow up in his face because the suede turns the garment purple near the waist. So suede from the belt turns it purple? Yeah. Hmm. Which I would not have guessed. So the suede is rubbing off and... Turning it purple. Interesting. Yep. And so then he starts to find one of his most important partnerships in Hattie Carnegie. So, Hattie Carnegie? Mm-hmm. Of the Carnegie? Of the Carnegies. She's known as someone who has quite the temper mm. and had caused many other designers to quit. But oh. in 1928, Norell heard about an opening in her company and camped out in Carnegie's office at 9 a.m. until she left at 5 p.m. And To do what? Talk to her? Yeah. Yeah, to show her his designs. Wow. And decades later, Norell said that he had learned everything he knew about fashion from her. Wow. So this was a really important mentorship. Yes. The duo provided a contrast in personality with a very self-controlled Norell, somehow trying to manage the very flamboyant and tyrannical Carnegie. <gasps> that feels very like a stressful work situation. It, Yeah, and he works with her for a very long time. Meanwhile, back in Indiana, Harry Levinson had died in 1930. Oh, no. And had suffered a stroke while attending a baseball game. His uh, son, Frank, Norell's brother, took full control of the business. Frank is the one who expands the business from the flagship store in Indianapolis. And the store across the state was known as Harry Levinson Men's Shop. So this is now all crossed. And Norell would return to Indianapolis every so often to visit his mother. And he would always spend Christmas in his hometown. And he would always spoil his nephews with toys Mm. purchased at FAO Schwartz, things like that. Mm -hmm. And although they were both... In fashion, there was never any professional link or swapping of ideas between the two. The two brothers? Yeah, which feels very odd to me because if 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 my brother is a very like up-and-coming designer, I want his designs in my store. The store that Frank sort of created post the death of his father, was this still a men-centric? Yeah, I Maybe mean, it was men-centric, but like... Different. I don't know. I mean, even so... If you can get Norman Norell designs at a certain point. Well, at this point, is Norman Norman yet? You know, is he this? That's fair. Yeah, I guess he's not like there enough. Maybe, I don't know. I'm just going to project. Maybe they just didn't find professional respect for one another. Like maybe Norman was like, you stayed here and did this and I'm here. And maybe Frank was like, you left and you're doing nothing. And I'm I, don't, here. I don't think that's professional respect. I think that's more personal animosity. Maybe. <laughs> or no, just personal regard, professional regard for their work. Sure. I don't know. We sure. could talk all day about why. But we will But for whatever never reason, really know. they weren't really collaborative, huh? Yeah. Although they did not get along, they both shared a very strong work ethic. Frank hustled to get his store to expand. Norell also hustled to get his sketches everywhere he could. And he worked with Carnegie to do this. But after 13 years, Norell and Carnegie clashed in 1941 over a costume design for the Broadway musical Lady in the Dark. Okay. Gertrude Lawrence, who was the leading lady of the show, had seen sketches from both Carnegie and Norell and had picked Norell's designs. Gasp. I know, drama. Apparently, this 
created a buzz in the theater world and a lot of different theories on why the mentee had surpassed the mentor Mm -hmm. sort of and had a lot of theories as to why they they kind of went their separate ways and apparently one one explanation was norrell's creations were too extravagant extravagant to reproduce for other clients but another was that lawrence preferred norrell's designs and carnegie was upset that seems like the most probable, right? Yeah, and not the, oh, we can't re- reproduce your stuff, so bye. He comes up with a sequin dress. I feel like there's no production issue. Yeah, I know. Luckily, though, after this falling out, he had created such a good reputation for himself that he was able to find jobs very quickly. Okay. He moves on from Carnegie and joins forces with Anthony Trana, who was a manufacturer of expensive clothes for women. Okay. This causes a fashion explosion for the business. And during the time, the fashion industry long was dependent on Paris for ideas. But during World War II, it got cut off from their idea center. Norell became the very first recipient in 1943 of the American Fashion Critics' newly created award, the Cody Award. In 1943, he accepts this award. And that same year, he's also asked to teach at the Parsons School for Design in New York, which he would stay in professional relations until he had died. So really, in the 40s, or post-split with Carnegie, he's sort of coming into his own, and this is when he really pops off. Yeah, he is gaining a lot of attention. So he's 40 years old at this time. He is. So if you're ever feeling behind, quote-unquote, behind, just remember... Norman was 40 before 40, he hit yeah. his stride. That's true. Although with all this success, Norman never married. He had a very lovely apartment in Manhattan. And although he had this very nice life and lifestyle, he was one who always wanted to give back. And he volunteered long hours at New York hospitals to help treat wounded soldiers and was doing everything at, that was asked of him. Wow. Yeah. His nephew, Alan, would come to New York and when he was in, t- in the Navy uh, to visit his uncle in Manhattan. And when they were on leaves, he and his fellow servicemen were able to stay at his uncle's apartment. Wow. And he said, we never really got to see my uncle when we were visiting because he would always be volunteering at the hospitals. And his nephew, is that Frank's son? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yep. Wow. It seemed like he had a pretty good relationship with Alan throughout this article. Yeah, this isn't the first time you've mentioned Alan, right? So that's why I asked. Yeah, yeah. This attitude of wanting to give back really follows him. And he is able to mentor Bill Blass, who is from Fort Wayne. And Blass recalls that Norrell would make trips to the Midwest merely to show and sell dresses to one or two clients who were willing to pay $1,000 per creation. Wow. And during this period, Norell also kept up his trips to Indianapolis to visit his mother, which is very nice. Yeah, he didn't seem to lose that sense of... Home. Yeah. Yeah. And he was so popular at this point in time that he was being asked by movie studios to come design for them exclusively. And although he would turn that down, he would privately design clothes for actresses of Hollywood. That sounds so fun. And he was not just a dramatic fad... They were also very comfortable, apparently. Um, His clothes? Yeah. So says Bacall. And 
he by the mid 60s he has this huge roster of celebrities clients from Lady Bird Johnson, Judy Garland, Carol Channing, and Dinah Shore. Wow. And every so often he would make costumes for movies. Like he made three outfits for Doris Day in That Touch of Mink in 1962. Everyone would say that amid all of this success, his personality never really changed. He always was very polite and always asked about other people before himself. And Denise Linden, Norrell's head model and chief organizer, told the fashion press, I never saw him angry at work. He was modest and self-effacing, and he often ate lunch at Hamburger Haven and seldom socialized with his famous clients. Interesting. I know. I wonder if that is just Norman as he was, or if working with Carnegie sort of taught him how maybe he didn't want to be, or... Yeah, but it even sounded like before he was working with Carnegie, that's just how he was. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. In 1960, his partnership with Trina ends because Trina chooses to retire, and his company is renamed Norman Norell Inc. Okay. This changes a lot of things. Most significantly, he reaped enormous praise for his collections, which included the introduction of culottes, as well as divided skirts, allowing for ease in walking, as well as getting in and out of cars, sailor-inspired clothing, and the sequin mm-hmm. mermaid dresses. Cute, cute, cute. Yes. And there's something very important that Norell attributed to his success, which was necklines. It's all in the neckline, isn't it? All in the neckline. He said that when he began working in the 1920s, designers were creating elaborate frilly necklines on their dresses, and he said he hated that, and he wanted to go with something that was more simple that made women look younger. Through all this, Norman suffered from very bad migraines. That sucks. And he was also a chain smoker, and that eventually did catch up with him. In the early 1960s, he was diagnosed with throat cancer. And he underwent a successful surgery on his vocal cords, which is great. And he was able to rebuild his voice box with tissue from his thigh. Whoa. Yep. He immediately quit uh, smoking and went to a benefit for cancer treatment by Bob Hope. He eventually regained some of his voice, but he basically spoke in a hoarse whisper, whisper for the rest of his life. It's just success after success for him, really. So, are you familiar with Revlon? Yes. Yes. Revlon, the makeup company, the founder Charles Revson, his wife Lynn, started a relationship, a friendship with Norell. Okay. And was so happy with that friendship that Charles convinced Norell to let him market a perfume named after him. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it sold incredibly well. Do you know what it smelled like? I do not. The 1968 was really his last great success. Okay. Although the perfume was great, Norell's dominance in the American fashion industry began to decline. And some sources say this is due to a falling out between Norell and John Fairchild, who was the publisher of Women's Wear Daily. After this, you start seeing his stuff less and less and less. A couple years after the release of the perfume... The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York announced plans to honor Norell with a special ex- exhibition in October of 1972. Okay. To show the design spanning nearly 50 years. And famous clients like Lynn Rebson agreed to come. 
And on October 15th, the day before the gala, no. Norrell suffered a stroke and collapsed and was rushed to the hospital. Norrell never recovered or regained his consciousness and was pronounced dead nine days later on October 25th, 1972, at the age of 72. I'm so sad that he didn't get to see his gala and his yeah. his, his, his thing. exhibition. Yeah, I know. Dang it. I know. At his funeral, the service was attended by celebrities as well as a group of Hoosiers that included Norrell's nephew, Alan. And by then, uh, Harry Levinson's men's shop had expanded to shopping centers in Indianapolis, including Glendale and Eastgate. And in 1985, when Norrell's older brother, Frank, celebrated his 91st birthday, the family clothing business had 10 outlets across the state. Wow. So they are both... Famous in their own regard. Sure. Maybe not famous. They were both... Well-respected. Successful. Yeah. In in their own ways. Yeah. And in 2000, the city of New York announced that bronze plaques honoring American designers would be placed along 7th Avenue as a kind of fashion walk of fame. Among the first honored was Norman Norell. Aw. Yeah. Norman. Yeah, his designs are are kind of gorgeous. Like, and if you guys decide to read the article... Like, you'll see. It's all wow. very simple. I think that's my favorite one. I think so, too. That's the triangle shape we were talking about. It was. And it's, like, it's a very cool Yeah, I think you flare. could classify his, his designs as, like, chic but high-end. Like, you see this. Chic and simple. Yeah. 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 There's definitely, like, a understated beauty <clears throat> about him. I agree. Well, thanks for sharing and thanks for listening. Yeah. That was Norman Norell, and that was all about fashion. We'll cool out you later. Catch you later. Oh, okay. But we'll cool out you later. I, okay, I could see where you were going, but I wasn't sure. Just trying to stay on thing. Yeah. Doing what I can for this we'll podcast. We'll scarf you later. No. No. Thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs> we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> Bye. Bye.